0: So you're know, welcome, everyone, to our annual uh, three-hour session of uh, information on r- the regulatory obligations for solicitors and also the one hour management CPD. Um, so most of you know the Legal Services Regulation Act was passed in 2015, but there was a section t- to deal with uh, legal costs, and that just became um, operative on the 7th of October this year, so it is now the law. So as users of legal services and as purchasers of legal services, we thought it would be useful for you to understand uh, what lawyers charging for legal services are now obligated to do vis-a-vis their clients. And the regime is quite different. Um, Those of you of a certain age will remember section 68 letters. That nomenclature is now over. And there is now a completely different type of regime in place. So the first thing that's happened is perhaps just a little bit of nomenclature change. So we used to have taxing masters. We will no longer have taxing masters. We now have legal costs adjudicators. So at least if you're speaking to someone out of the jurisdiction um, and you talk about a taxing master, you don't have to explain it because a legal cost adjudicator uh, means something more obvious. There are little tweaks to that regime uh, to try and make it more uh, transparent uh, and to try and make it more efficient and also Uh, i think to allow the government to monitor and manage the holders of uh, those offices just a little bit more better and more effectively uh, than previously there is a restatement of the prohibition against charging uh, percentages so uh, charging on a percentage basis remains unlawful in ireland save for debt cases are a liquidated demand it's always been more interesting uh, to think about uh, the liquidated demand aspect. So everyone understands if it's a simple debt collection, yes, you can say to your solicitor, fine, it'll be no phone, no fee, but you can have 20% of whatever we collect. Um, or, however, if you're looking at a liquidated demand, you could imagine a situation where someone could decide that they are going to sue for a certain amount, damages, and they are not going to sue for damages, and try and reach some fee structure like that. I've yet to meet anyone who's gutsy enough to do that, uh, but in certain types of uh, cases where, for example, there's a breach of a financial contract where the monetary amount can be precisely <coughs> determined, then I think it's a more... Um, it's an option that could be potentially discussed with your legal advisor. So if a case can be framed as a liquidated demand case, charging by percentages is open. This, there's been a bit of chat about this. So those of you used to litigation will recall that uh, in this jurisdiction, junior counsel used traditionally charge two thirds uh, of senior counsel's brief fees for matters. Why? Because that was what they did. In Northern Ireland, they used charge half. Why? Because that was what they did, uh, or else there was some sort of incredibly weird thing that happened at the border. But that was just the way it was. Half in Northern Ireland, two thirds in Ireland. That is now prohibited. So reference charging by junior counsel uh, with respect to what senior counsel charges is prohibited. In general terms, the Act places greater obligations on solicitors keep clients informed about costs at the start and throughout the life of a matter. And in that sense, nothing could be more welcome. It is absolutely fantastic. And in all our internal presentations on this, the, the expression we use is, if that's the law, great, because they are the behaviors that we try and inculcate in lawyers all of the time so that we can avoid surprises in relation uh, to fees. However, if that's, I suppose, a statement of the law, the manner of execution uh, and implementation of that principle is perhaps somewhat unusual. And if you read the Act, you come away with an impression that this legislation is designed to cater for one cohort of the profession only, and that is plaintiff, personal injury lawyers uh, and their dealings with their clients. So there is the whole tenor and approach of the legislation appears to be addressed at a perceived mischief of overcharging by plaintiff lawyers in personal injury matters and lack of transparency in relation to how fees are charged, Are fees deducted from awards? Are percentages charged by plaintiff lawyers? And that's unfortunate uh, because it makes for a slightly clunky piece of legislation in operative terms, uh, as you will see as we go through it. So what does it mean in practical terms? So first of all, there's an alternative structure. So you can either, as the solicitor, serve notices on clients telling them about legal costs, or you can have an agreement. So that sounds wonderful for commercial practitioners You think we're going to have an agreement. Uh, However, the type of agreement you have is quite prescriptive, um, but the notices function is also extremely clunky. I fully expect all commercial (laughs) law firms to go down the agreements road uh, because it's more comprehensive. I think it's more suitable for the clients of commercial law firms. So the agreement has to comply with relevant parts of the Act. So what is an agreement? What people would probably refer to as a section 151 agreement because that's the relevant section. But an engagement letter that is accepted, obviously that can be an agreement. Service level agreements, um, contracts of retainer, whatever you call the agreement you have in place with your external lawyer can be a qualifying agreement. If there's a qualifying agreement, you don't have to serve all of the notices. However, uh, lots of people have existing, um, uh, existing agreements in place, and the question will arise whether or not those agreements uh, apply. So I've just been given a helpful note that if you have any questions, you can actually submit them on that same website, sly.do, uh, and we'll pick them up at the end. It also means we can screen the questions for the easier ones. Okay, so just returning then to the, the bedrock of the law. So then, so this is what sets out the obligations in notices, and then you have the alternative of the agreements. So the notices require that on receiving instructions from a client, a legal practitioner will provide the client with a notice that discloses the legal costs that will be uh, Uh, incurred in relation to the matter concerned. So you'll see again, it's very directed, it's very matter specific. It's not aimed at a relationship where there might may be multiple matters and multiple engagements across a business and its law firm. And then you think, here's my, as a practicing solicitor, you think, God, that's impossible. How on earth will I be able to disclose at the outset of an engagement in relation to, for example, a national piece of infrastructure, what the legal costs will be? Because nobody knows how this is going to go. You think, well, here's uh, 152B. If it's not reasonably practical for the notice to disclose, I can set out the basis. And you think, yippee, there's uh, the way forward. However, there is a saver that says where that applies, as soon as it is practicable to do so, you have to give the client a notice containing the information. So that's a continuing obligation. And while it is, in so many cases, absolutely impractical to say what the cost will be at the absolute outset of the matter, it does become clearer after a while. So what is the agreement provision? So the agreement provision says, responsibly enough that the lawyer and client can make an agreement in writing concerning the amount, the manner uh, of payment of all or part of the legal costs that are payable uh, by the practitioner in relation to a matter. Again, you see that narrow targeted approach. So it's targeted at a matter, whereas most agreements between commercial solicitors and their clients cover a range of matters. So there's a little bit of drafting involved to make sure that your overarching agreement addresses a matter and matters. The agreement is only sufficient to remove the obligation to serve notices if it, if it includes a number of particulars set out in section 150, subsection 4, um, and then you have no obligation to serve notices. And those. Uh, requirements are quite extensive so the engagement letters you will get from commercial law firms now have lots of stuff in them and you'll go well I wonder why that's in them and the usually the reason it's in them is because it's a statutory obligation to include the information so you have to and this you see the language is that a, a notice must, and this then applies equally to an agreement so it must specify, and, and you'll see that the lawyers are not allowed just tell you, they have to certify. I'm not sure what the difference between that is, but the language, I think, is meant to convey a sort of gravamen. So you have to certify costs which have been incurred, uh, then you have to certify costs that are uh, of a fixed nature, um, and then you have to certify, if it's impractical, the basis on which they're to be charged. So they are the things that have to be uh, certified, and they are the things that have to be set out uh, in the agreement. So there are a bunch of other requirements as well. You have to stipulate VAT and the VAT rate. And if you're charging a fixed fee, you have to go on and do the sum on the VAT rate that currently applies so that the number is actually there. You have to set out the basis of calculation of fees uh, if, it's, if it's other than a fixed fee. You have, to, uh, you have to positively state, and this is a change, you have to positively state that you as a law firm have an obligation to inform the clients of any factor which makes the cost significantly greater uh, than, uh, they were initially, than the costs initially disclosed are indicated. And then there are a huge raft of litigation-specific obligations, really quite extensive litigation-specific obligations, ranging from not only uh, alerting clients in relation to the possibility of adverse costs orders in lots of different situations, but also breaking litigation up into its component parts, exchange of pleadings, taking of instructions, witness uh, statements, Uh, and discovery and giving financial information in relation to each one of those components. So I thought I'd put this up. I'm not expecting anyone to read a slide like this, right? But I'm just putting this up to show what law firms do internally to try and grapple with this regulation. So this is an excerpt from the new Mason-Hayes and Curran engagement letter. And what we do is we say, Please choose which one or more of the following paragraphs should be included in this letter in terms of the cost to be incurred. And so so this would be our template. And we we say, okay, if this is a fixed fee matter, use this text in green. We certify that the fees charged for the matters, and earlier in the letter, the matters and scope of the matters and assumptions are set out, shall be x plus vat. Provided that the assumptions hold good, and then if the assumptions don't hold good, the fees shall be charged on the basis set out in section 3 below, another entire section of this letter. And then we go down and say, okay, you're not charging a fixed fee, but you've given a fee estimate, or it's a matter where you're able to give a fee estimate. Use the blue text. So based on our experience, we estimate you're likely to incur legal costs, and just to be clear, legal costs is way more than just solicitors' costs. Um, in the range of X to Y plus expenses and VAT. Please carefully note it's an estimate. It may be higher, it may, in very rare cases, in my experience, be lower. Um, uh, uh, but it's an estimate, particularly if the scope and assumptions on which the estimate base uh, don't hold good. And then we say, okay, if it's not reasonably practical to provide a fixed fee or a fee estimate, put in the purple text, and we say it's not reasonably practical This is because of the nature and likely evolution of the matter, and therefore the legal services required to address your present and future needs are currently uncertain. And then we set out the basis in section three. So the architecture of this is green for fixed fee, blues for estimates, purple for um, statement that it's not practicable. And it goes to a default basis, which is set out in the next section. And remember I said you have to say what's actually already been incurred, so that's the grey bit. Finally, we certify that fees have already been incurred, so that's if the engagement letter is a little bit late coming. So I just thought it might be bring it to life a little bit if you had a look at what actually people are doing to try and navigate um, uh, the, the statutory framework. So then you get to section three, so the nature of the legal costs, the basis on which they are charged, and this runs on, as you can imagine. So just to say that I mentioned that legal costs, it's a broad enough concept, so it's professional fees, professional fees to third parties, barristers, accountants, expert witnesses, incidental and out-of-pocket expenses, taxes, usually VAT, but also transactional taxes. So all of this is there. you find details of it below. So just thought I'd uh, set that out. There's also, if I mentioned the new obligation to positively inform clients of the ongoing obligation to tell them of any factor which would uh, significantly increase the cost. And you'll find that, I think, in every a commercial law firm's engagement letter. And if you don't find it, uh, they're in breach of the act. The structures for litigation are even more complex. So if a matter involves or is likely to involve uh, litigation, the agreement must have an outline of the work to be done at each stage of the litigation. So if you think about the different types of litigation, from judicial review to special summons procedures to summary summons procedures to an ordinary plenary action uh, to all sorts of... uh, statutory inquiries, investigations, um, WRC matters. Litigation is very broadly defined and so then there has to be an outline of work at each stage of that particular litigation. You have to have the costs, likely costs, or basis of costs involved in each stage. The likelihood of engaging a third party to provide services, e.g., a barrister. And again, if you go back to what I said at the start, a lot of this is aimed at a personal injury plaintiff lawyers. So, you know, clients going, who's this guy? Never heard of them. You know, who's this person? So, all of this has to be uh, disclosed. And information regarding the legal and financial consequences of losing or withdrawing. That actually was there previously, um, but it has to be uh, provided. Um, And a statement, this is new, that solicitors are prohibited from hiring third parties such as barristers without advising the clients of the costs of that third party and obtaining the client's approval. That's a hugely cumbersome process in, big high stakes litigation with a lot of moving parts, Um, but it's there. So again, I just thought I'd give you a look, see at what we're trying to do in templates internally on this, just to see how this works in practice, try and comply with the sweep of the legislation we have if it's in litigation. Here's an outline of work usually arises in litigation process. And by the way, this is just for a plenary action. Um, stage of litigation taking instructions outline of the work required there's a narrative is third party engagement likely to be required yes no is the what's the basis okay so there is set out at section 3 I, I showed you a part of section 3 earlier on and then likely cost so do we actually know so you, if we know we put it in if we can estimate we put it in You delete it if we're not in a position and it defers to the basis. And that little section is repeated for lots and lots of different parts of litigation. And that is the mandatory statutory requirement. So they're long letters. And then you look at managing the prohibition on engaging third parties in litigation without consent. So again, you'll find in the engagement letters um, We will not engage the services of a barrister without, to the extent practical, ascertaining their cost, advising you of the cost, obtaining your approval. And we decided to take a somewhat pragmatic approach in our template. We'll assume that you approve if you don't object in three days after we tell you about the cost or basis of the cost. And again, fine in many respects. If you have a straightforward matter, you can talk to a barrister or expert and say, what's your fee going to be, and you'll get an answer and you can get the cost. But if you're in a complex piece of commercial litigation, you are not going to get the cost of each barrister stipulated at the beginning of the matter because nobody has a clue. And nor are you going to get the cost of an expert stipulated at the matter because nobody has a clue. And what you will end up is a statement saying that the costs of engaging a barrister are the current market costs of engaging a professional of similar stature on an ongoing basis. And you'll end up with that kind of opaque language. So, in that sense, um, the legislature has aimed uh, very directly, um, but in, to some extent uh, missed the target. Just again, in terms of engagement, there's a cooling off period mandated by the legislation. Again, not at all aimed at commercial clients. So you get these long kind of statements have to be put in. So we take it you accept the terms of the agreement and will instruct us if you sign the agreement or if you give us instructions after you receive the engagement letter. And then, again, this is mandated. We won't provide legal services until we get the letter, our instructions, are three days, unless, and this is the only savers that are in the act, in our view, if we didn't, we'd breach a statutory requirement or prejudice your rights in a way that couldn't be later remedied, uh, or we were required by court order, or uh, bizarrely, and I enjoy, I look forward to explaining this to a client from France on a non-contentious matter, a notice of trial has been served. Uh, so that's but that's there. They are the requirements So if I pause uh, Just to observe I'm a huge fan of transparency in legal costs And that's why I said at the start uh, that if the intent was to make things transparent uh, We're all for it. Yes, there are some things which I think will make particularly lay clients uh, more cognizant of fees, that's to be welcomed. There are other um, aspects of transparency which I think are improved, uh, but simple things like a solicitor should uh, tell clients every month what an accrual is and combine that with an estimate of the next month's fees, stuff that could have been put in, no opportunity taken to do that. So um, in my experience, what people hate in terms of not just lawyers fees but professional services fees is surprises and what you're trying to do I would have thought would be create legislation to guard against that. So mandated communication around accruals and perhaps the next month's fees would be very good at managing that and it will also address issues that law firms go nuts about. So what law firms go nuts about amongst many other things is uh, when but they're in a competitive tender position, and they give what they think is a realistic estimate, and they get beaten by what they think is a complete low ball, and they find out later on that the low ball was tripled, and um, their own estimate was you know, much less than it ended up. So that, that kind of thing isn't really addressed uh, by the legislation. But there are a couple of other things which I'll touch on briefly uh, in relation to bills, if you forgive the editorial sidebar. Um, So mandatory uh, requirement, if you're getting a bill uh, and the legal services have resulted in damages being recovered in an order for costs, the amount of damages recovered and the costs that are recoverable must be specified in the bill. Again, think plaintiff, personal injury lawyer, and their client. The bills must now include on their face a mandated procedure for disputing the bill. So you will find on every single bill now a page which has a mandated process which says things like, the law firm must talk to you about the bill, great. Uh, You uh, can have the bill assessed by the legal costs adjudicator, great. And then an interesting one in relation to mediation where the language seems to suggest that you can require mediation which is antithetical to mediation, of course, which is meant to be a, a mutually consensual process. But in any event, mediation is uh, set out, um, and indeed, if mediation brings uh, a solution for the parties, it's to be welcomed. The bills must be signed. So from big law firms, you'll get facsimile signatures. Um, council's fee notes must be sent to you as soon as they arrive. And this, uh, perhaps one of the more curious ones so arguably there is a requirement to attach the agreement regarding legal costs to every bill so for those of you who work in banks and are the beneficiaries of perhaps 120 or 150 page service level agreements a literal reading of the legislation would be that every single bill that issues from the law firm has to have that 150 page agreement attached to it now There is an alternative interpretation uh, that would be, well, maybe it's only the final bill at the very end of the relationship that would have to include that um, agreement. And I think that pragmatic approach is going to be adopted by the major law firms. Um, But I would expect that if anyone is ever going to adjudication on a bill, there will be uh, a final bill issued with the agreement attached to it to try and bring out bring about that kind of compliance. What happens uh, if people don't comply? So failure to comply with the requirements uh, may amount to misconduct. So the new legal services regulation authority will have jurisdiction and indeed may investigate law firms to see if they're compliant in a whole number of respects. So in due course, uh, you would have to expect Uh, some regulatory um, action in this uh, zone to see if uh, there is uh, adherence or non-adherence by law firms. If a client disputes the bill and the bill is referred to adjudication, the firm may not recover any charge which isn't the subject of the agreement, uh, the saver, unless to disallow it would create an injustice between the parties. Now, I presume that will be interpreted To mean that people shouldn't obtain service for free, Um, but I imagine that uh, a bill which is not covered by an agreement or where notices have not been served will get a fairly cold welcome uh, with the legal costs adjudicator. Then when there is an adjudication, there is a sort of you have to win by more than 15% rule. Uh, That mirrors uh, pre-existing legislation, so if the client gets a reduction Of more than 15%, the solicitor's firm pays for the adjudication, but if the client only gets a reduction of 14%, the client pays for the costs of the adjudication. So perhaps some key takeaways to wrap up. If you don't have an agreement with your law firm, you should be getting notices. That's the law. Uh, If you have an agreement, it's probably worthwhile having a look at it to see if the mandatory requirements are stapled into it. Um, you'll find that you'll be pushing an open door with law firms in relation, let's do a one pager and make sure we can make this compliant for everybody's sakes. Uh, So that's if you have an agreement, does it comply? Be aware of law firms ongoing obligations to keep you informed of costs. So that's if they're aware of any factor which can make the costs higher than those indicated or disclosed. The law firm has a positive obligation. So if you get a surprise in terms of charges, you're well entitled to say, well, hold on, when did you know that we were going to be way over budget? And why didn't you tell me then? Like, not only am I annoyed by this. See over to Hall Grace, and thank you very much for your attention.
1: Uh, um, so we're gonna talk about conflicts of interest and professional ethics this morning. In particular, we're going to focus on how they affect in-house counsel, all of you. And we will uh, look at what conflict is. We'll take a few uh, examples of of how they manifest themselves. Uh, Importantly, I think, in your roles, we're going to look at how you manage conflicts of interest or potential conflicts of interest, how you might think about them, uh, and how you might select a law firm uh, on on the basis of that thought process. So before we get stuck into the mundanity and the detail, Let's go back and be a bit dreamy and remember that law is important. <clears throat> I have a quote here that I've always liked from Martin Luther King. It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important, which it is. So, you know, on a dull, cold morning when you're stuck in the Shelburne Hotel, remember that what you do is actually important. Albeit, uh, what we do is probably a little bit different to the importance of that. And then, in the terms of how we practice uh, law and our day-to-day uh, lives and the ethics that surround us, um, Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, the famous uh, US Supreme Court uh, justice and jurist said um, if you want to know the law and nothing else, <clears throat> um, you need to look at it as how a bad man would view the law and how he can benefit from it um, and then a good man would look at the law uh, and look outside the law and have regard to his own conscience in how they act and, and that kind of, it's in that space I think that uh, we begin to drill down. Uh, in, to see what a lawyer's duties are. Uh, they don't begin and end with the instructions you receive, nor do they uh, require you to push all the time to the, um, uh, to the benefit of, your, of, of uh, your client or within your own um, rules of engagement. You have to be cognizant of why or, or situations where you may be in breach of your ethics or uh, that you might be uh, acting contrary uh, to your client's best interests in situations of conflicts, for example. So um, as we'll come to later as well, the role of an in-house solicitor in all of that uh, is is more complex when you consider the various hats that you all wear and the variety of roles that you occupy, and many of you do in the organizations you're with, this whole conversation and discussion can become really complex. So now, coming back down to earth and drawing ourselves into the great room in the Shelburne, as they call it, The topic of the talk, as I said this morning, professional ethics and um, uh, the focus on conflicts of interest. Um, I hope to give you a brief overview of what we're going to talk about. Um, I'll provide, or at least I hope to provide, some practical reference points and reminders uh, as to how you deal with conflicts, as I said at the start, and the examples which won't be particularly onerous. There's a little bit more interactivity, but I promise there's no technology involved. Um, we will also look at the Law Society's Guide on Professional Conduct uh, and also the in-house guide that they produced uh, in May 2018, um, which is focused on how uh, in-house um, solicitors conduct their roles. So then, what is ethics uh, for the solicitor? Uh, what are professional ethics on the solicitor's obligations and following them? The, uh, go- the Guide to Good Professional Conduct, which was launched in 2013, Uh, It's probably due an update, given the changes in uh, solicitor's regulations that uh, um, have passed recently. Um, But it still serves a a purpose and uh, encompasses the fundamental principles of what constitutes good practice uh, and ethical and professional standards. Uh, Interestingly, I kind of got bored in the middle of doing the research for this, uh, so I googled and word-searched within the document, rather, uh, the word ethics and they don't define it. Uh, it only appears in reference to the guidance and ethics committee uh, and their helpline. Uh, and then I couldn't find the number for the helpline. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure it's there, I just, I just well, that's where technology ran out for me. Um, so it, it's interesting in that the guide for good professional conduct actually doesn't itself refer to the word um, ethics or seek to discuss it or define it itself. Um, however, uh, it, it does go about explaining and dealing with the issues that you would expect um, it to deal with in being a useful guide. So it notes solicitors' obligations to the clients, uh, courts, the public, state, um, and, and obviously the interaction with each of those entities and, um, can in itself present conflicts uh, and, and pull you in different directions on how you might consider particular topics and interests. So um, it, it, it notes that. And it also makes it clear that the profession is characterized by some core values uh, honesty. Uh, no conflicts, uh, confidentiality, acting independently. The last one, of course, is, is tricky, as I said, the multiplicity of roles that you have when you're acting as an in-house counsel. So, um, notwithstanding the fact it doesn't define ethics, it kind of deals with all the bits and pieces that you'd expect it to in, in, in the kind of the backdrop um, of ethics. So, in, in, in Ireland, I suppose, it's always, we always look to, or uh, are, are soon to be, uh, divorced uh, big brother um, in England and Wales, <clears throat> so the English approach is about to change when it comes to the codification of legal standards and the Solicitor's Regula- Regulatory, uh, I'm just going to call them the SRA, um, has introduced standards and regulations which come into effect on the 25th of November and they list uh, seven mandatory principles uh, as to how a solicitor must act. So it's worth um, taking a moment to read them. So um, a solicitor must act in a way that upholds constitutional principle, the rule of law, the proper administration of justice in a way that upholds public trust, confidence in the sister's profession, and illegal services provided by authorised persons must act with independence, honesty, integrity, um, in a way that encourages equality, diversity, and inclusion, and in the best interests of each client. I uh, highlight the one in green there because obviously there's a kind of a legislative backdrop um, requiring, um, requiring all pretty much uh, to act in that manner in any event. So if there is to be an update to the guide, uh, it may not do a, a complete copy-and-paste job, and that might be one that they feel is dealt with the LSRA or, or the law side is dealt with elsewhere. Um, so, <clears throat> there, it's also interesting to note as well in the, uh, guide, or in the SRA code um, that there's a, a new and specific regulatory obligation to keep ethical uh, knowledge up-to-date, and you are given a responsibility for those that you manage to ensure that they are trained. Uh, and that their knowledge and skills are kept up to date in terms of understanding legal, ethical and regulatory obligations. So just briefly returning to the uh, Law Society's own guide. Uh, One of the things that solicitors must be, and the thing I think that is a key element uh, of our discussion when we come to conflicts of interest uh, in a little bit more detail later on, is the idea that a solicitor must be independent. Uh, this can be tricky where your client is your employer. Trickier still if there's a lot of different facets um, to your role. And one of the things I think, that, and I mentioned is at the start, that the in-house solicitor is, is so much more than simply just a legal advisor. They end up getting dragged into uh, a lot of different things and a lot of different areas that are not necessarily or, or, or traditionally uh, within their own um, possibly comfort zone or, or, or remit. I think this pinwheel itself is an astonishing uh, range of uh, functions and roles that you carry out. And it comes from the um, the guide for in-house solicitors employed in the corporate and public sectors that the Law Society produced, as I mentioned last year. Um, I don't think, though, that the pinwheel actually covers everything. And I'm sure the braver amongst you, if you want, can shout some out didn't think so. And then, it's too early for that, carry on, isn't it? Um, and then I kind of thought about some myself. So for example, um, counselor is one that came to mind. You're a trusted person, you're skilled, everybody looks to you for leadership, they know that you can keep a secret, they know that you're trustworthy, ethical, you abide by all these standards, you have had training and years of it and experience. So they may come to you with problems that are not necessarily and traditionally within your role as an in-house legal counsel. So that's another role that fits into this. And, and could potentially give rise for a conflict, depending on information that is shared with you. You're all good communicators, both written and orally. You will be able to write things better than your colleagues. You will be able to speak better than I can, I mean, and your colleagues. So you're, you're always going to give, um, you'll be, be dragged in to do things that are outside of your kind of traditional roles. And again, when you're doing all those things, you have to be careful about your obligations. If you, you know, you have a practicing certificate, you have obligations, you are a professional, you must act as a solicitor should act. Uh, Turning back again, just that concept of independence, Um, the in-house guide um, talks, um, it it runs the full gamut of how to apply for a job as an in-house counsel, to what you should do, to how you comply, refers to the, there's another publication that I mentioned very briefly at the end about um, dealing with solicitor's regulations. It focuses in though on, on, on independence notes that you have one client, it is your employer. Uh, it notes you have a duty of loyalty. It notes you should share common objectives uh, in as far as possible with your employer. At the same time, it says you must be independent and impartial, so you're constantly treading uh, a thin line and you're on a knife edge. Um, you have a duty to maintain professional conduct, which means when you are instructed to do something, you should pause and reflect. Um, you may have to challenge the instruction, which is going to be Potentially, uh, be awkward in those situations should you seek second opinion should you seek it externally is there somebody you can talk to internally all of these things in many respects are common sense and as I said you've had years of training and possibly in private practice as well as um, in-house so you know that there's an accumulation of knowledge and experience uh, as well that applies to this rather than just what's written in a guide and a code <clears throat> some of the I suppose just to pause maybe and think of an example of an in-house lawyer um, who might be where, where a conflict of interest in this in this scenario might arise um, if you're advising a company that is going through uh, or, or your company that you work in is going through a reorganization uh, or a merger and there's a discussion about redundancies um, and you are one of the people to be made redundant well potentially to be made redundant that obviously is is, an, is, is, is a, a moment for pause can you act um, with a clear conscience um, is your employer aware of the fact that you know you might be um, uh, this is an issue uh, that could raise a conflict if they don't <coughs> you should disclose it to them you should raise the issue um, you should suggest to the employer do they need to seek um, external advice reveal the conflict allow them to have um, the opportunity to make informed consent which is a topic that I'll discuss in a slightly different cons- uh, context uh, later on There are, I suppose, one or two other obvious examples as well that uh, might be more common. Um, your employer asks you to do something that's contrary to your professional obligations. Uh, that's something you have to decline. Again, that's, that's an awkward conversation, but it's one that's best to have uh, early on. Um, contrary to your advice, you've already advised that the company should not do, or the body should not do something. Uh, it could be criminal conduct, for example. That brings you into the whole world of um, whistleblowing and at that point you absolutely need to seek uh, external uh, and independent advice. So notwithstanding all that and all the doom and gloom and all the bad news, um, factually speaking uh, there are only an extremely limited number of cases of in-house counsel being disciplined by the law society. That's notwithstanding the fact that whether you take it by members of the society or or numbers of practicing certificates about a fifth of solicitors in Ireland um, work uh, don't work in private practice and are in-house. And I think, I actually don't have the number off, off the top of my head, I forgot it. Um, but it's, it's a very, it's a tiny number, I think it's below 5% in terms of um, the solicitor's disciplinary movement. And the main reasons that are normally given for this is that you don't um, provide services to the public, you rarely ha- cli- rarely handle client money, and employers deal with inappropriate behavior and incompetence through their own internal grievance procedures and employment, uh, and, and through the means of employment law. Um, However, it's probably a little bit unfair to characterize it in those three um, terms. I think it's probably fair to say that, for the most part, solicitors do a good job. They're well-trained, they're conscientious, they're ethical by nature. They've spent years doing it. So that's kind of an element that people um, sometimes don't want to necessarily admit. Um, But I think it's an important one in the context of of this discussion. So we're going to move then to... uh, Drilling into a little bit more detail as to uh, what is a conflict of interest. Um, solicitors can't act where there is a conflict of interest is kind of the golden rule of what we're talking about. So it's good for the framing the rest of this discussion to kind of say and pose what is a conflict of interest. So the guide to professional conduct describes it <clears throat> as uh, solicitor acting with, the ordinary, with ordinary care. Um, if they would give different advice to different clients about the same matter there's a conflict of interest between those clients if the solicitor and the solicitor shouldn't act for both. Uh, The solicitor is also likely to have a conflict if either client could reasonably take exception to what the other client has asked the solicitor to do. So that is kind of the the bog standard definition that you have uh, in in the code. And I'm sure it's something that we all have have an awareness of and an understanding without having having to read it. Um, Very briefly, The Solicitor's Regulations kind of focus in on two aspects of the conflict uh, of interest dynamic um, dealings between two clients. I'm not going to speak much about conveyancing. Um, There are specific prohibitions around that. There are two exceptions uh, that are relevant in-house counsel. One is that transfers of land between associated companies falls outside the prohibition um, and also uh, transactions with qualifying investors can also um, fall outside uh, the exception. Um, again, there's some uh, from the non conveyancing that are, are not necessarily um, relevant. You know, vulnerable clients uh, and state versus criminal, state solicitors acting against or, or for criminals uh, against the state is also prohibited. <coughs> um, one of the things that is relevant, though, is where you waive a conflict of interest and you engage somebody um, who may otherwise be conflicted. And that is something that we'll talk about in, in kind of some detail in terms of how you manage the conflict whether or not you should waive your conflict, do you have agreements in place contractually prohibiting a solicitor acting against you and that type of thing. So we'll get on to that. Um, Also dealings between client and solicitor, again, relevant to the context of being an in-house counsel. Um, The case I gave you, or the the, the example I gave you previously, if if, if there is going to be change in the organization, what fundamentally changes your role um, or whether you have a role at all. Um, that is a situation where your, your client, um, in the sense of, of, of being an in house solicitor, has a different, um, your, your interests are no longer aligned, and you have to consider that one carefully. And it's worth remembering acting in breach um, of the scenarios uh, contemplated um, where there is a conflict of interest, you can be in breach of your professional duty uh, of having undivided loyalty to a client, duty of full disclosure. Uh, And the first example, we're gonna come on to some examples and the first example deals with this. And in breach of, potentially in breach of the duty of confidentiality owed to each client. Now then, going to look at some um, examples of conflicts of interest. Um, The first one involves uh, the SRA and two gentlemen, Simon Solomon Pinner and Daniel Edward Morris who ran a law firm called Fair Plain. And this is a decision that came out uh, in November. Excuse me. <clears throat> so these two gentlemen had, uh, had a uh, law firm. Uh, the only thing they really did was represent clients who had complaints about and were seeking compensation in respect of delays and cancellations of flights under the European regulations. So they also had a business uh, where, which they owned 50-50 for insurance broker um, called Box Legal. And they also owned an insurance company that insured you should you fail in your action and fail to get legal costs. So you'd approach these thousands of clients, actually did this over a three year period, um, you would approach the law firm, uh, you would seek their advice and guidance and they would tell you what the law is, presumably, and then they would recommend that you get insurance for the costs that may follow and the costs would come out of your compensation. Hey presto, that's great, uh, one stop shop. They didn't bother telling the clients that um, they owned the broker and they owned the insurance company. So, unsurprisingly, um, the SRA didn't think that this was a particularly brilliant um, business plan from uh, an ethical viewpoint and that there were clear conflicts. And this resulted in a fine. Of uh, £55,000. One guy got fined a little bit more uh, than the other, and I can't really understand why they both seem to be uh, involved in the same uh, in the same thing. And the costs were £25,000. At one point, as well, they actually gave advice that the law firm gave advice saying we are we are not insurance brokers. Um, so um, there was a lot of things that are wrong and and this is an obvious example And you're kind of wondering why am I giving you an obvious example sure that's like as plain as the nose of my face or the beard of my face or the fact that I need a haircut Um, that you know this is something that you know everybody should should know that the reason I say it is that sometimes when you approach a law firm you kind of make an assumption that they also know what you know their potential conflicts with your business Um, if you make coca-cola you know Pepsi, acting for them, looking for your recipe, may, uh, you know, may be a conflict. But it is worth drilling into that a little bit. It is worth asking the question. Um, it's worth mapping out. If X happens, if Y happens, if I go to war with Z, would you still not have a conflict? Oh, OK. Yeah, maybe. So it's, it's kind of something that it's, it's, it's you know, sometimes the, the, the obvious um, is worth examining. Um, this example uh, involves wills and probates and stuff and I was actually going to take it out and then I decided to leave it in because of what the, the, the High Court in this case, and I think it's important, particularly from the perspective of an in-house solicitor. There's a focus here as to, um, notwithstanding the typo, uh, that's party which entity in the second bullet, sorry about that. Um, so the, apart from that, the, the, um, the High Court focuses in on the definition of client. Who is your client? Um, is the client always your client? Has the matter changed? have your duties changed and, and that's another aspect perhaps when you're retaining a law firm on a long-running basis you've a long relationship and then you start doing different things with different counterparties um, it's worth you know the nature of the examination as to how you examine the conflicts of interest may change so it's worth keeping that in mind uh, the next one is a, is, is a very short example again it's quite obvious it comes from uh, the other profession and the main are two reasons I put this up one I wanted to get a picture of sheep dip uh, into a presentation uh, in the Shelburne Hotel. And secondly, it involves barristers. And my wife's a barrister, and it's worth reminding um, barristers sometimes that uh, they have issues around conflicts uh, as well. Um, <clears throat> so basically, this is one where barrister defended a farmer one week in proceedings to do with the sheep tip tank. Um, there, there was an enforcement order by the County Council. And the next week, or, or possibly a couple of weeks later, he acted for uh, people who are. Uh, trying to adversely possess part of the farmer's lands against the farmer, so and he of course had the confidential information. He knew where the sheep dip tank was. Um, now this is the interactive bit, but as I said, there's no technology, so it's, this is a show of hands. Um, the bathrooms are on the left. Should you wish to disappear, um, this is um, actually based on a, on a case, uh, and I'll give it to you later on um, what the case is. <coughs> so deal. Uh, wants to buy DALI. So you work in big Irish law firm, big Irish law firm acts for a large retailer client. DALI in relation to intellectual property um, aspects of its Irish operations, that's what you do for them, DALI also instructs other large Dublin firms on different matters. Another retail giant, Dill, neither of these are German, <coughs> has approached you to represent it in negotiations for the acquisition of DALI. Can you and big Irish law firm act for Dill? So you have three options. Option one, you can act as the takeover is a completely separate matter and will be handled by a different team within the firm from what you normally do. You can act as there is no service level agreement with DALI prohibiting conflicts. You can't act unless you have written consent to both parties and have ethical walls in place due to use the increased risk of accidental disclosure of confidential information. So who thinks one? Two, three. Oh, you're all terribly clever. I'm doing a fantastic job. One or the other. Um, this case is based on you're all correct. Uh, Marks and Spencer and Freshfields. So Marks and Spencer um, had retained Freshfields over a long period of time, uh, and it all went swimmingly well. Then they, they, then they engaged other law firms, and the relationship began to diminish in terms of the volume of work. Um, Philip Green uh, then approached uh, Freshfields, and obviously Philip knew that. They had a history. They understood the, you know, the, the, the process, and he was going to buy Marks and Spencer's. Marks and Spencer sought an injunction, um, and uh, Freshfields appealed and said that there was no issue. They had ethical walls. They were good solicitors. Um, they were acting in entirely in good faith. And in fairness, the, 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 the High Court, uh, in dealing with this in the UK, acknowledged specifically that at all times Freshfields were acting uh, in good faith. Notwithstanding. <clears throat> that, they granted the injunction, they prevented fresh fuels uh, from acting, and on appeal, they dismissed the, 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 the appeal um, uh, out of hand and said that it had no chance of success. So <clears throat> again, uh, another obvious example, but you know, you know you feel good about yourselves, you got a question, right? Um, we'll see f- how the other questions go later on. Um, so we've looked at uh, uh, various conflicts, how they arise, some of the obvious ones, uh, things to think about. Um, again looking at the the guide for in-house solicitors employed uh in corporate and public sectors that the law society published they include this useful checklist around managing conflicts of interest uh first up be familiar with the rules i put a tick beside it because at the end of this you will be you'll be bored to tears with them uh second bullet consider whether there's a potential conflict what if there's a war Again, playing out the scenarios you talked about later on. Um, one of the things that they don't specifically mention, but it, it kind of comes through in the, in, in, in the writing afterwards, is you know, doing your research as to the particular firm you're about to engage. Check their website. They may have a list of all of the things they've done really, really well with your competitors and arch rivals and nemesis. Um, is there a service level agreement, panel arrangement already in place that you should refer to before approaching and reaching out to any firms? Have you gone through a procurement? A procurement? process, as Declan mentioned, or, or those mentioned in one of the questions, um, firms' conflict check and, and, and practice. So, what does the firm do themselves routinely, whether or not there's an SLA in place or not? So, <clears throat> these are all things to consider uh, when you have a piece of work that you want to refer to a law firm. And then here's a question: Are potential conflicts always bad? How, how pure do you want your law firm to be? Do you want them to be so absolutely, no way there could ever be a conflict because they've never actually done the work before and they've no idea what they're doing and um, they've never acted for your arrivals, they've never acted in the sector, there's no potential that you would ever have a falling out with them because they have never done this work before. Probably not. So you may have to have a balancing act, um, balancing kind of the experience, whether that experience is with a competitor or not. Some industries are, are absolutely fine having people work um, you know, amongst their rivals, other industries, it's absolutely, you know, something that that, that is kind of not acceptable. Um, sectoral experience, you know, and, and, and all that kind of stuff as well is very important in terms of figuring out what's the best law firm for you, and it may actually, um, you might find yourself in a situation where there's only one or two law firms that can do something, and you might have a transaction that requires all of their teams to be involved. So. <clears throat> um, The fundamental, I suppose, piece as well as another fundamental piece to that is whether or not the information that will be revealed to them, how confidential and fundamental it is to your business, will the secret sauce that you're involved in procuring and making, um, is that something that will be revealed in the course of this particular piece of work? If it's buying a warehouse somewhere, you know, probably not. Um, or something kind of, you know, that isn't. Um, it's probably worth mentioning as well in terms of statistics, again, uh, in terms of law firms managing conflicts. Um, of all the things that our law firms are complained about, um, undertakings, uh, retaining files, failure to account, kind of dominate them. Failure to account is a gentle way of, you know, stealing. Um, conflicts of interest uh, is actually fairly low down the list uh, in, 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 in comparative terms. Um, so, again, a little bit like solicitors generally speaking acting ethically and that's why there aren't um, you know, lots of complaints generally in terms of this particular topic, conflicts of interest, it doesn't necessarily dominate the headlines. Um, we mentioned service level agreements, so what I've decided to do is put up two kind of different examples as to the clauses that you might consider putting in, should you decide after all that that you do actually need a service agreement, that you do want your law firms to absolutely not act for anybody else ever. Um, the first one doesn't do that. It's, it's reasonably benign. Um, it talks about uh, notifying uh, clients you know, using reasonable endeavours. Um, you know, if the conflict actually arises, then ceasing. But it's it, it's kind of reflects the guidance itself and the, the kind of rules around conflict of interest as they arise. The second one is more of a relationship, and um, this one actually comes from an in, in, international investment bank, uh, and it's it's reasonably tough. Um, you know it, and it kind of reflects um, more of a situation where you 'd have a good throughput of work coming from that particular client such that you would You know, not accept instructions almost from anybody else um, who who might be uh, in any way acting adverse to them or at the opposite side of a transaction so the the point of that basically is to the extent you want to have a service level agreement with a particular law firm you have to make sure that um, it's kind of built for purpose around this particular um, issue and also to figure out what you need um, and and how robust you need it to be in terms of the examination of conflicts. as I mentioned as well firms have their own policies with respect to this um, and I suppose you're, you're kind of getting a good look under the hood of Mason Hayes and Curran this morning with Declan showing you all our templates and colors um, um, he doesn't show you the videos of him shouting at you how to fill out the <laughs> templates um, that's obviously next year's CPD but um, the their own process when it comes to managing conflicts is um, we have uh, all our systems obviously electronic that the benefit I suppose being in a large firm and um, so initially we will put through the names of the clients the details of the matter to the extent we get them the um, um, essentially all of that information pertaining to a conflict that is relevant gets kind of chucked into the into the hopper <clears throat> and if there is a hit um, we obviously examine it and we um, make a decision as to whether or not and the, the decisions are made by uh, in our firm a partner level as you'd expect um, and we also have a, a kind of a backup, a second stage to the process, which involves an email circulating. Um, the, the recipient group for the email, depending on the sensitivity of, of, sensitivity of the topic, obviously can be tailored uh, at, the, at the client's request. And we act, ask clients uh, as well. When, when, when instruction comes in, we, there's an intuitive. Intuitively, you'll know how confidential or, or kind of not how confidential or how sensitive something might be, and you will act accordingly. But that's our. our basically our our kind of two-stage process in in managing that, because the one thing you don't want with an urgent matter is to find out 10 days into getting advice that there's a conflict. Again, it's a little bit like costs and bills. You don't want to be surprised. Surprises are bad, Um, that they're not good. So this is, again, one of those topics that you um, have to have somebody retained who's prepared, fully on top of the issues, aware, has a process to make sure that you can go off and find different representation if you need to, as quickly as you can. <coughs> Excuse me. So, turning then to a situation where um, there is a conflict and there are potential conflicts, you've decided, ah, to hell with it. I'm going to retain the firm anyway because I like them. Um, you, you need to, before you consent to that and, and waive the conflict of interest, you need to consent to it on an informed basis. So you should have all the information you need uh, at the tips of your fingers. You need to be told uh, that there's a potential conflict. You need to understand that the solicitor may not be able to fully advise you, they may not be able to disclose all of the information at hand. Um, You need to be happy that notwithstanding all that, you're still happy to go with that particular solicitor, particular firm. Uh, Resources, do they have enough people? Do they have different teams? Uh, And that's relevant in in the context of ethical walls, which will be the final piece I'll talk about uh, in a moment. Um, And also, if there are situations where you're absolutely told you need independent legal advice and you've come to me, don't ask Declan, or don't ask Brian, or don't I. Go to another firm. Get independent legal advice from an independent solicitor. Finally, um, ethical walls. So you've waived the conflict. you're happy to use the firm, there'll be two teams. There are three essential features, I think, of a useful or, or, or you know, a, a, an effective ethical wall. Um, physical separation uh, of teams representing clients in the same transaction. Clarity on lines of communication between the teams and supervisors. That's fundamental. Separate systems and records. uh, Technology. It's very easy. You can forward the email to the wrong person. Like, you know, predictive outlook awfulness uh, where your information just gets uh, flipped across to the other side inadvertently. So that can, from a technological perspective, that can all be um, stopped. And um, ongoing management oversight. The management of the firm involved does not need to know the fundamentals are the details of the two matters, but they can absolutely be aware of the fact there is a conflict. There are ethical walls in place, and how to deal with them, and how they should be managed, and make sure that everybody is aware of what they should be doing and that they do it. Um, you can layer on other bits and pieces to that as you see fit. Uh, you can list individual solicitors, for example, that you do or don't want to uh, work on a particular matter. <coughs> so happily, whistle stop tour concluded. Uh, takeaways: um, Going back to the very first. Two slides. You know, law is important. Um, how you do it, for you know, whether you're good or whether you're bad, um, you've won reputation. Don't tarnish it. Of all the cases, almost that you look at that are in the Solicitors' Disciplinary Tribunal here, soon to be the SRA, or on the High Court on appeal, or in the SRA uh, in the UK, um, the the uh, number of times you see the phrase "an otherwise unblemished career." Um, and, and it's, it's just that one time and you know, you're goosed. So that's, that's kind of the first thing, goes without saying, but um, I was told i had to give you three takeaways. So that's the first one. Um, second one, is the mere possibility of conflict enough to just walk away from a firm that you may have used for years and years and years? Um, think about what it means, think about the type of work you need to do, uh, think about the systems that can be put in place. And that brings me uh, finally to the third takeaway, um, ethical walls, they're available, they're used, they need to have certain features to make sure that they're robust and they do work properly um, and, and make sure you're all over them. So um, that's it from me. Um, I've referred to these three uh, publications throughout, um, so um, it is only ethical for me to give credit to the Law Society for producing them. Um, and uh, lots of information is available in the Law Society and, and they are improving, I think, um, how um, they provide information to in-house counsel. So I'll introduce you to Brian Johnson, colleague who's going to talk to you about cybersecurity. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Um, good morning, everyone.
2: Um, so I'm here to talk about cybersecurity incidents, and just to start with a hard truth, everyone in this room, to the extent it hasn't happened already, will be impacted by a cybersecurity incident. And that's okay. It's inevitable, it's part of doing business. And what we're going to talk about today is how you prepare for that and how you respond to that. So a good starting point is what do I mean by cybersecurity incident? You might be thinking, isn't that what happens when a sophisticated network of criminals decide to, to hack into your computer, that's not relevant to me, why, why should I care about this? But it's really important to, to change that mindset and think about a cybersecurity incident as something that results in unauthorised access to either your system or your data, and that's really broad. Put it another way, it's what happens when something goes wrong with your systems or goes wrong with your data. And as we all know, if something can go wrong, inevitably at some point it will. And so it's with that very broad um, idea in mind uh, that you need to think about what the real challenges are here. Um, And where the threats are coming from. And it's not just the baddie, the external criminal on the outside that you need to be thinking about. You also need to think about your internal threats, um, whether that's complacent staff, people attaching the wrong uh, attachment to an email, as Michal mentioned, um, or whether there's a disgruntled employee uh, looking to make trouble. Um, The scope for cybersecurity incidents is really broad, um, and you just need to be alive to the fact that this happens, it's commonplace. Um, and you need to be prepared to deal with it. Um, so if I could just ask you to again pick up your phones um, and to go back to Slido. I'll try something here. Um, okay, getting closer to the, probably the real figure. So have <coughs> you been affected by a cybersecurity incident in the last 12 months? A lot of no's very Broad concept now. Okay, we're kind of settling on about 50, close enough to 50, 50. Okay, I mean, that's surprising. Um, I think cybersecurity incidents are, are increasingly common. Um, you send information to the wrong person, you lose a laptop, you lose a, a USB key. All of those are cybersecurity incidents uh, that can impact on your business. Um, <coughs> So, it's, it's important to, to be alive to that. Um, so, just some, some practical examples. Um, here's an example of a, what's called a, a CEO or a CFO fraud. Um, as you'll see, it's an email purporting to be someone who's the CEO. It's quite casual in nature, just an email saying, oh, hey, you know, could you give me a call? Could you get in touch with me? I'm in a bit of a jam, I need you to transfer some money. Um, and this is quite common. And the, the aim here is that someone will respond, engage in a conversation, and the next thing you know, they're feeling under pressure, they're authorising a transaction, or they're authorising some funds. So in preparing for this, um, I learned that this is this happens within Mason Hayes and Curran also. Um, up to four or five times a year, an email purporting to be from Detlin Black uh, will be sent to someone in the firm. Again, could you give me a call? I need. They get to get this done quickly and again it's quite conversational um, and we're all alive to the risks but these are, these are out there um, and if you're in a, in a rush or you're feeling under pressure sometimes you might click that link or you might make a bad decision so you just need to be alive to that and um, this one is a little bit more sophisticated then uh, the premise here is password requ- uh, request uh, resets uh, which is something that we all use when we forget passwords so it's, it's a little bit more clever than the last one Um, and it doesn't come straight out and say give me your password details because that's something we're all quite wary of but what it does is it includes this cancel button if you haven't requested this hit cancel so maybe you'll click that and what you'll be brought to is a very sophisticated mock-up of a microsoft login page where it'll be asked to reset your password details at which point the criminal will have access to your system and be able to, to access your data and access your systems. And that's how quick and easy this can happen. And these emails are, are floating around. Um, but as I mentioned, you don't require necessarily an external actor. Internal issues can result in cybersecurity instance, whether it's attaching the wrong document, losing a USB, or doing something you shouldn't with data. If you're giving someone access to your data when you shouldn't, uh, you need to be alive uh, to these risks. Uh, so why should you care? Um, there's loads of risks associated with these sorts of incidents. Uh, The most immediate and practical is the operational risk. Depending on the type of incident, your business could simply be disrupted, your website could be crashed, you could lose information that you need, information could become corrupted, you could suffer a a ransomware attack and you actually just can't get access to the systems and the data you need. That can just simply stop you doing business and so that's a very immediate impact. And The other operational risk is dealing with these incidents. Just take up a huge amount of time, whether it's looking into what's happened, figuring out what your obligations are, how are you're going to fix it, how you're going to communicate with customers, regulate it. That just is a huge drain on resources, and resources that can be better spent on more productive things like doing business. There's obviously reputational risks. Any material cybersecurity incident will invariably come out, whether someone is talking about it on Twitter or you have to make a public statement. People find out that you, as a Business have lost data, misused data, something along those lines. And that just chips away at your reputation. And maybe people will think twice about the next time you ask for data, the next time you launch an app, the next time you offer a new service. Uh, the biggest risk, though, um, probably is the risk of regulatory fines um, and compensation claims. Um, so, to the extent any cybersecurity incident involves personal data, um, you need to be alive to your um, obligations under GDPR around implementing appropriate security measures. And we've seen from a couple of examples in the UK recently um, that this is a, a really serious issue with potentially significant consequences. So, the Information Commissioner's Office, so that's the UK Data Protection Authority, has proposed two fines um, this year, both for a failing of. Uh, security obligation and they're quite different and quite interesting so the first one is um, relates to the Marriott International the hotel group and um, so they were fined or well, there's a proposal for a fine of near close to 100 million pounds the incident itself involved a vulnerability to a system and up to about 340 million users were affected by 30 of those in Europe and you might be thinking well that's you know fair enough that's a lot of users and there's a big vulnerability The interesting thing here is that the vulnerability manifested itself in another company's systems, Starwood Hotel Group, in 2014. Marriott didn't acquire Starwood until 2016, they didn't find out about the vulnerability until 2018, and what the ICO said was, I know you say you did your due diligence, I know you got contractual warranties, but that's not good enough. As soon as you take on those systems, as soon as you take on that data, you're taking on responsibility and you're taking on uh, that risk. Um, and So it wasn't good enough for Marriott to say we thought we did everything we could. They were expected to do more. Um, similarly with British Airways, there's a proposal of a fine of £184 million. Pounds. Um, so again, this is for a, a security, security breach. And A little bit like Marriott, you do have to feel a little bit sorry for British Airways. This involved a a very sophisticated attack on the British Airways homepage, where a a fraudulent link was put on the website. Customers were redirected from the legitimate British Airways site to a a fraudulent site, where people were asked to enter all the sensitive details you would have no problem entering on an airline's website, name, address, email address, login details, payment details. Um, And so this vulnerability existed, and despite British Airways taking what they consider to be appropriate measures, over half a million customers provided their details to this criminal enterprise. And again, British Airways said, This is really sophisticated stuff. What are are we supposed to do? And the ICO again said, We have no sympathy. You could have done more. You should have taken uh, further steps. And so the point of all this is I mean, these are kind of extreme examples, but the point of this is that. The law and regulators don't really care that you are a victim, what they will look to is have you complied with your obligations and you need to be prepared uh, to be able to demonstrate that you have. So what can you do about it? Um, The the main thing that you can do is to put in place policies and documentation around your systems and around your data. when looking at your obligations, whether it's under GDPR or whether if you're a telco and it's the e-privacy regulations or you're a, a digital service provider and it's the NIST directive, whatever piece of legislation applies to you, uh, there's nothing out there that says you have to be perfect. There's nothing out that says that you absolutely have to prevent security incidents from happening. What you need to do is put in place appropriate security measures. And what is appropriate will depend on what type of data you have, what your systems are, what you're doing with it. Um, and your guiding uh, factor in all of this is: what's the risk? What's the risk to my data? What's the risk if this data goes missing? What's the risk uh, to data subjects? Um, and so that is what you should should be looking at. Now, I'm not an information security expert, and there are plenty of those out there, and they will guide you on on technically what measures look like and what industry practices and what certifications are. And that's really what you should be what you should be aiming for. Um, in terms of uh, other policies, you need to, uh, other documents you need to de- develop a written policy or framework. Um, and this document needs to show that you have considered what your systems are, what your data is, and that you've implemented appropriate measures as a result. And so the document needs to, at least at a high level, describe what your systems are, describe what data you have, and show meaningful engagement. It's not just a boilerplate. Uh, security incident response framework that you've, you've downloaded from somewhere or someone has given to you, it needs to show practical application. In addition the framework also needs to explain exactly what steps to take when an incident takes place, um, when the inevitable occurs, um, what are the escalation procedures, who's responsible for what, um, these are all really important factors that you need to decide now because when an incident happens you, don't want to have, you don't have, simply don't have time to go back and start asking well, who was responsible for this, why wasn't this done. Um, The document then should also identify your legal obligations, including whether you have notification obligations to regulators or even to individuals themselves. Um, The final point just to mention on this, GDPR changed quite a lot, changed the landscape, landscape quite a bit, but one of the biggest changes is this principle it brings in called the principle of accountability. And what it requires is it's an obligation to actually demonstrate how you're being compliant. So before GDPR, it was enough that you handled data correctly, you didn't lose data, and nothing went wrong. Now you actually have a positive obligation to put policies in place to demonstrate how you're making sure it doesn't go wrong. And so, this is a, an active obligation, and it's something that regulators look for regularly. If there is an incident, if there is an issue, the first question regulators will ask can we see your policies? And if you don't have one, and you're scrambling and saying, oh, well, there's something about encryption in this document, or something about access control in this document, you're going to be on the back foot. And so, it's really important that you, uh, you have those written documents in place. So in terms of how to decide what is appropriate, so again, you'll be very much guided by your information security experts, your IT teams, uh, but just some general um, points on what a regulator would expect to see. So they would expect you to have done a a security risk review. Again, that's identifying what your systems are, what your data is, what you use it for, identifying what are the the high risk points. Um, And you really need to understand that if you're going to be able to defensively say, we considered this and we implemented the following measures, and so that's really important. Again, you also need to understand what's vital for your business, what data can't you do without, and you need to put in place appropriate business continuity measures, whether that's a backup plan, or whether that's alternative service providers, Um, these sorts of measures I think you need to be thinking about. And always focus on protect what matters most, what will cause you the most risk, what will disrupt your business most, and that's what you need to protect. Then it's really important to emphasize that GDPR and any other obligation, they're not static. As much as we all would have liked to get to May 2018 and say that's GDPR done, let's not talk about it again. Unfortunately, you need to continuously reassess um, what security measures you have in place. Um, and that can be periodically, every, every year or every two years, uh, but also at key milestones. So as we've seen in the Marriott case, if you're acquiring some other business or you're bringing a new service on on board or you are handling new data, you need to think about are the measures I have in place still appropriate. The other thing to think about then is your supply chain, so you can have the best possible security um, in the world, inevitably you are going to rely on a third party or a service provider for something and as soon as you hand them data, um, that increases risk, because once they are handling data um, on your behalf, There's a likelihood that they could lose the data, and the first thing the regulator is going to do is to look to you, the controller, um, as the one responsible for that. So, what you need to do is do your due diligence. Who are you doing business with? Who are you giving your data to? Um, And that's not just a a best practice measure, it's not just um, a good contractual step. There's actually a a GDPR obligation where you need to get uh, sufficient guarantees from service providers that you hand data to. And those guarantees are that the service provider should be able to handle your data to the same standard in a manner that complies with gdpr and again it's about thinking laterally it's also about thinking what am i going to need from this service provider in the event there's an incident do i need specific continuity business continuity services do i need extended backup do i need assistance with practically dealing with an incident in the event it arises so you need to think about this in your contract the other thing to think about then is your staff um, and ensure there's awareness. Um, the the more aware your staff are, the more alive they are to those phishing emails that we saw earlier, and um, the easier it is to defend your business against these risks. And um, now I mentioned training, and, and training is is a, is a great thing to roll out, particularly when you have a new document. But um, sometimes it can be quite onerous. You know, it's, if it's whether it's an hour at lunchtime or it's a, an online uh, learning tool or something like that, that can that can take time and it is something that you, sh- you should do maybe once a year but it's also about thinking about little practical tips that you can, um, that you can take. So whether it's a, a IT top tips every week or here's the latest phishing emails and circulate that, those to your users, they're really practical tips on raising awareness so people are alive to this. Uh, the other point then is just to encourage incident reporting. This stuff happens, you know, uh, data goes missing, systems don't work as they should. Um, and the fact that they have is not something that should be criticised. Um, you need uh, to encourage reporting and you need people to be aware of these risks. So, In terms of what to do in the immediate aftermath, uh, so there's a couple of crucial steps that you need to take. Uh, the first is to remediate the impact, and what does that mean? Well, it really depends on the incident. Has data gone missing? Can you recover it from a backup? Is data corrupted? Can you retrieve a, a previous version of it? Have users or customers been affected? Do you need to force those people to log out of their accounts and log back in? These are all practical steps that need to be taken. And again, you should be very much guided by your information security uh, professionals. The second is gather facts and keep gathering facts. Inevitably, things change over time. And what you're told in the immediate aftermath will inevitably change. And so you need to continue asking questions, asking different people the same questions, because sometimes you can get no information, sometimes you get too much information, or sometimes you can get conflicting information, so you need to be constantly vigilant about this. With that in mind then, you also need to start a paper trail. You need to start thinking about what am I going to say to a regulator or to customers about what happened here, and so you need to start writing down what happened, when, and why you took the decisions you took, and hindsight is great, and if, for example, the data protection commissioner looks at, at what happened, they will have the benefit of hindsight in all likelihood. And so, it's important that if you had taken a decision that it turns out maybe wasn't the best one, that you at least have documented why you took that decision and why, at the time, it was the right thing to do. And so, having that paper trail is really important. It's also important to involve all uh, key stakeholders. Um, so incidents affect the entire business. And so it's important that everyone is on board with the, the message, the internal message, what has happened, the external message, whether you're communicating to customers. Um, so it's important that there is consistency there. Um, there's also a, a, a lot of PR and a communications aspect to it. Um, and explaining the implications of cybersecurity incidents, whether it's um, you know, the technical side or the legal side, um, Communicating that to the public is often not best done just by engineers and just by lawyers. It's important that you have a a communications involvement. And it's not good enough to involve them half an hour before a press release or something goes out the door. It's to get them involved right from the start and that can help you to craft your message. Then finally, you need to assess whether you have any reporting or notification obligations. Um, And there are a few of those depending on what sectors you're in, and we're just going to talk about two of those. Um, So the first one, Really arises where you think you've identified any criminal behaviour. So, say for example, you see some fraudulent credit card activity, or you see a very obvious scam going on. Um, you need to think about if you need to inform on Garda Shikana. So, the Criminal Justice Act creates a mandatory reporting obligation um, in the event that a person becomes aware of certain information relating to certain offences. Um, now, this is a really broad obligation, and it applies in respect of a wide range of offences, white collar crime, fraud, theft and a number of computer crime offences also, the likes of hacking, all those sorts of things that you would typically associate with cyber security incidents. Uh, there's uh, a mandatory reporting obligation potentially applicable to all of these. So in terms of when you need to report, this is set out in section 11 of the criminal justice act. So what it says is a person, so that is a, both a natural and a legal person, so that's really important that potentially your members of staff. Um, and you could have an obligation here. So it's important that you have a, a really joined up policy on, on how you communicate or how you, how you inform. So, whether that's an escalation, an escalation to a designated person within the company who will handle these reports, you need to have something there. Um, so, a person shall be guilty of an offence if he or she has information which he or she knows or believes. So, it's knowledge or belief. So, that I would suggest is a, a relatively high threshold. Uh, might be of material assistance, again, that's a, a relatively high threshold, in preventing offences. So it's important to think about the implication there. So you don't have to wait for an offence to have taken place for this obligation to kick in. Potentially, if you see uh, some attempted credit card fraud or something like that, you need to be thinking do I need to report this? Could this materially assist in preventing this offence? Um, Then the obligation also applies to securing the apprehension, prosecution, or conviction um, of those those offenders. Um, So, then there is a a certain qualifier um, where you have a reasonable excuse uh, not to disclose. Um, It's not clear how that will be interpreted. None of this has been through the courts yet. Um, And so, you should be operating on the assumption that if you hit each of these requirements, so you know or believe, it would be of material assistance. Um, you need to be thinking about whether you have a reporting obligation. So, reporting in practice then. So, when should you report? So, what if you uh, are you saying that every time you identify a phishing email or something, you need to report it to the guards? Well, no, I, I don't think that is the case. Um, if you look back at the test, it's a, a reasonably high threshold. So, you need to know or believe, and it needs to be of material assistance. If you just see a a phishing email and you delete it straight away, that information isn't going to be of uh, material assistance. But you need to be thinking about this obligation. Um, and if it is the case that you decide you spot something, but you don't think you hit the threshold, you need to be recording that decision. So if you were ever asked, well, why didn't you notify this, uh, this criminal enterprise that were targeting your employees, that you have a record of that. Um, do you need to report immediately? Again, you need to have an appropriate policy in place typically where there will be an escalation up um, to the designated person, maybe it's you or maybe it's a compliance officer who will handle all of this. Um, So in terms of uh, practically, um, the the guards take the position, um, and we've had some discussions with them, that you don't need to understand what piece of legislation um, criminalises a particular activity. If it looks and feels like criminal behaviour, you should report it. Now That's certainly one interpretation. Um, it doesn't lend itself really to easy implementation in a business, um, but that is their view, and it's something that you should be aware of. Um, you should also be aware that there actually hasn't been any prosecutions uh, for failing to report under this particular piece of legislation in relation to fraud or white collar crime, um, and as far as we're aware, there's no investigations into that. Um, so that's uh, that's an important uh, factor to take into account when you're setting up your your process for how to how to deal with this. In the event you do hit the threshold, um, how should you report? The Act is completely silent. All it says is that you need to inform a member of Ngarda Shia That could be giving someone a call, that could even be approaching um, a guard on the street and making that report. Um, but again, it's about understanding where your risk points are um, within your organisation and developing a policy um, on how you're going to be able to deal with these reporting obligations should they arise. So, in terms of who should report, as I mentioned, strictly speaking, it applies to natural and legal persons. So, employees also have obligations. Um, And so, it's important that you give them comfort by having a a policy in place where once something is escalated up, it's dealt with properly and not not suppressed. Um, So, in terms of other notifications, the primary one then is under GDPR. Um, To the extent you're processing personal data and that's been impacted by an incident, You may have an obligation to notify the Data Protection Commission. Um, So the obligation uh, to notify applies to certain categories of personal data breach and the obligation to notify is without undue delay and within 72 hours where feasible. Now when we think back to all the fact gathering and investigating um, personal data breaches, that's not a huge amount of time. Uh, You need to start thinking about this any time you realise that personal data is affected because it is a really short period of time and it is something that the the DPC looks at quite closely. The default position is that you need to notify a personal data breach. Um, You can avoid that obligation where you can determine that it is unlikely to result in risk to natural persons Um, and so that will require a a careful assessment of of what the risks are. Depend when you look at what the data is, what's the likelihood of a risk materialising, all these various uh, factors that you need to take into account. I should also mention there's, there's also potentially an obligation to notify data subjects um, where the personal data breach is likely to result in high risk. Um, and so that's something, something to be aware of. So, to the extent that someone got access to someone's payment details, bank account details, medical records, that sort of thing you need to be thinking about not just notifying the regulator, but also notifying the data subject. Um, now, One qualification to that is within the GDPR, it talks about cooperation with the Data Protection Commission and law enforcement. If you stumble upon a criminal enterprise um, and it happens to be affecting some of your customers, if disclosing that to the data subjects would in some way uh, impair a GARDA investigation, that's a factor that maybe you can take into account in not reporting. Um, so these are all just various factors that you need to consider and put in your policy framework so they're at the forefront of your mind. Um, to, the ex- to those acting as processors, um, so that's where you're acting on behalf of someone else and handling their data, unfortunately you don't have discretion to decide around whether something's low risk or high risk. Um, you need to inform all your customers, all your controllers that a personal data breach has arisen and that can be a really um, onerous obligation. So then when do you need to notify? Um, so you need to notify when you become aware, and what does what does that mean? Given that facts always change and you're always trying to find out, find out more and get confirmation. So GDPR says that awareness crystallises where you have a reasonable degree of certainty that personal data has been affected, and um, so that suggests there is scope for you to do investigation. Um, you don't need to immediately run off and notify the DPC, and um, that's particularly the case where you're tipped off maybe by a third party. So someone comes to you and says oh, I noticed this on your website I think this is a personal data breach again you don't need to run off to the, the, the DPC and tell them what's happened you can do you can take your time uh, consider what's happened and make your own assessment then in terms of what the notification needs to be this will depend on risk and um, so risk is broadly defined as any negative or adverse effect so that could be financial it could be physical it could be psychiatric um, there's a huge range of Potential risks out there. And what you need to be looking at is what's the likelihood of that risk materializing and also what's the severity of that risk. And um, to the extent that you think that someone's financial details have gotten out, um, they're readily identifiable, someone could easily use it to commit identity theft, I mean, that's something that's probably going to lean towards high risk. Whereas if you accidentally attach the wrong document, and you send it to a solicitor or uh, someone on the other side, um, could you make an assessment they're actually a a trusted recipient, what's the likelihood of them not having deleted the attachment like they said they did, maybe quite low? And in that scenario, maybe you can think, well, actually, that's probably unlikely to result in a risk. So in that scenario, maybe you don't need to notify anyone. Maybe you just need to make sure there's a record of what's happened. Um, So you can tell the DPC in case it ever ever arises. So, once you've considered, you've taken your immediate steps, you've considered your notification obligations, what do you do next? Um, So, one of the key steps is conduct an investigation. Um, And some people hear that and they think, well, that sounds very complicated, it sounds very expensive, and it sounds very long. Uh, But it doesn't need to be. An investigation is really just the means by which you've tried to identify a couple of things what happened, what was the issue, what was the deficiency, so what went wrong, and what are your remedial measures, so how are you going to fix it, and the sooner you can start that process and start documenting that and getting to a position where you can tell the DPC this happened, it was because of ABC, but here is how we are fixing ABC and it will be done within three, six months. The DPC will be much less likely to want to go and further explore uh, what steps you are taking, it is all about being proactive and being able to, to give them information. Um, so again, if you have made a notification, do prepare for follow-up, so the DPC is, is well-staffed, well-resourced. And to the extent there is, they consider there is a risk to data subjects, that they will ask questions and it can get quite intense. And So you really need to have your story straight and have your documents ready to produce when requested. Again, it's important to keep legal privilege at the forefront of your mind. If you engage a third party to uh, investigate a security breach, it's possible, probably likely, that they're going, to invest, they're going to find out some stuff that doesn't reflect well on you as an organisation and your security measures. And So you need to be thinking, is the reason I'm getting this expert report done, is the, the dominant purpose of that for litigation and if it is, maybe you can benefit from legal privilege and maybe you can wrap up um, a lot of that report in legal privilege and that's, that's a really important thing to do. Um, in parallel then you need to be thinking about what you can provide to the DPC if they ask um, it's going to be very frustrating for them if they come and ask for documents and you just keep saying it's privileged, it's all privileged. So you need to be thinking about, need to be thinking about that as well. In terms of key takeaways then, um, remember it's a question of when, not a question of if. Cybersecurity incidents are inevitable and that's okay, provided that you've prepared well and that you respond well. So preparation is key both in terms of your policy documents, your framework documents, it's important they're tried and tested and not so complicated that when an incident happens you just throw it out, throw it out the door and say, you know, this is too complicated, I can't rely on it. Um, and effective implementation is really important as well, and that means that the people who need to know about the policy actually know how it works and they know what their obligations are, so testing it, giving it a dry run is really important. Um, obligations are not static, um, so it is important that you review, uh, audit and reassess the security measures you, ha- you have in place. Periodically is always good practice, but whenever there is a new key milestone, acquiring a new business, something like that, again, think about what your security measures are. Um, and Be aware of your full range of statutory reporting obligations, so we have mentioned the mandatory reporting and GDPR, but you might have others under your own uh, particular sector, whether that is under e-privacy, uh, the NIST directive, PSD2, various other obligations. Um, so, that was a, a quick run through. Some of the applications, are questions? Great. Um, so, is it a criminal offence to engage with hackers and pay a ransom? Um, that's a really difficult question. Um, as far as I understand it, no. Um, that in some cases that is the only way to get your data back, and we've worked with small insurance brokers and and others um, who've suffered uh, from ransomware attacks, and simply the only reason, the only way to get back uh, your data is to to engage with them, but for the most part what you should be doing is uh, engaging with with the guards or security experts uh, before you take any sort of steps like that. Um, is there a Garda Cybercrime Division to which offences might be appropriately re- reported? Uh, yes, there is an Economic uh, Fraud Division um, and we can uh, share the details of those. Um, but again, with these offences it is possible to simply report it to any, any Garda station to report it to any member of um, Garda Siakona. Uh, DPC seems to suggest they want more breaches notified. Not clear why. If substantial risk uh, is not achieved for notification purposes. What's MHC's experience with the DPC? Um, I mean, I think with the DPC, it really depends on, on who you're speaking with. Uh, sometimes you can go to a conference and they will <coughs> communicate that there is a certain element of over reporting. And in their annual report, um, they give some stats of about 5,500 reports that have been made. They identified four as non breaches. So that suggests there is a, a certain degree of over reporting. Having said that, you could go to another conference um, and the DPC could say, you know, if you think there's a breach, you need to report it, and that it's not good enough to say that my peers or my competitors aren't reporting these types of breaches. Um, so it really depends. And it's important to, to not try and game the system, really, and try and understand what others are doing, what the DPC might think. It's about having your policies in place so you can gather enough information so you can make an objective assessment. Do I have a reporting obligation here? And it's about being consistent about that. So that even if it turns out the DPC comes and says, you know, those sorts of breaches where you're sending it to another solicitor, actually, we think they're notifiable, um, then at least you have a consistent position adopted where you set out the reasons why you think it's unlikely to result in high risk. Um, so that was a kind of a quick run through um, cybersecurity incidents. And
0: now uh, we have a very interesting speaker. We have Melissa Sayre, who uh, is an adjunct assistant professor at Trinity Business School. And Melissa is going to talk to you about leadership, and in particular, issues of trust and collaboration in leadership. So thank you very much, Melissa. Uh, Melissa is not a solicitor, and that is her great claim to fame in this room. So we'll give her a warm welcome. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you very much for that uh, warm welcome. Good morning uh, everybody. Um, So I've been asked to talk to you about leadership and building your team. I suspect that Mick McCarthy is doing his post-mortem of uh, building his team this morning. Um, But I guess I want to contextualise building your team in a a workplace uh, setting. So, I'm going to uh, start off by putting out a provocation and a question, and I'm going to encourage you to uh, use the, the provocation and the question as a lens to interact on your Slido app. And then by the time we get to the end of our talk, then we'll come back to this hypothesis and this question and see where we feel about, about this. So, I guess my provocation is that leaders get the teams and organizations that they deserve. Um, And I'm curious as to what you think about that and what I might mean about that. Um, I also want you to think about, do we believe that teams and organizations get the leaders that they deserve? So, have that bubbling in the background, maybe start Uh, filtering your questions through Slido as we navigate through some of this this territory. So I want to contextualize the playground within which leadership takes place. Um, We often talk about we're living in this VUCA world, and what we mean by living in a VUCA world is that um, it's a world of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And that is the playground with which which we have to be these great leaders. And we've often talked up leadership as this kind of heroic endeavor. But if we think of uh, why we talk about living in a VUCA world, it's because of things largely like globalization, technology disruption, uh, customization, so on and so forth. We're now in what we call the, the, the fourth industrial revolution. So I thought that this was really interesting, the kind of previous speakers talking about this whole world of you know, cyber security, talking about the complexities of conflicts of interest. So these concepts are not alien to you, they're what you're navigating on, on a daily basis. But the whole idea of adaptation is not new. So whilst it might feel to us like we're living in this really kind of complex and volatile world, think of what it would have been like in the first industrial revolution, when people were figuring out how to get steam going, or when we moved on to the second, electricity, then we moved into the era of big computers. Now we find ourselves in the era of uh, cybersecurity is certainly one, artificial intelligence, biohacking, where we're doing you know, insane stuff like gene editing, and an awful lot of these concepts are beyond our own comprehension. So we have this kind of world that we live in where these advances are taking place and we're always running to try and catch up with these, these advances. So as a consequence of this world that we live in and some of the, the big challenges that we face, such as uh, the need to solve climate uh, change and what climate action we might take, where we can see uh, that there is either a uh, evolving of a new type of politics or we are potentially see some countries pulling back to more nationalisation uh, uh, approaches. So all of these things are creating uh, different expectations of leaders. Uh, you know, we're almost kind of pushing leadership back into uh, this heroic endeavour, but we know simply that that doesn't work. We know that our best work is done when we can do collaborative work, when we can do collective work to solve some of these more complex problems. And that's largely what I want to focus on today. These new standards and skill sets that are expected of us to enable us to create the environment, create the right mood music on the playground, for your people to do their best work, for them to be able to collaborate. So we recognise that we're, we're in this kind of complex world. We recognise that the expectations of us as leaders are, are huge. And we probably need to kind of cut through the mustard on that and simplify it a little bit for ourselves. So I guess Harvard tried to simplify, well, what do we... What what do we mean by kind of the the best performing leader? And they carry out this survey, and they look at the top 100 best CEOs uh, globally every year. And the the recent uh, survey, which is just being released for 2019, has identified the top five leaders are uh, Jensen Wang, who uh, created a company called uh, NVIDIA. And what was really interesting about the company he created was uh, it started off as creating computer chips, okay? But creating computer chips to enable uh, video games to, to work faster. But then there was a huge growth area when they were really thriving and, and, and feeding this video game industry. But he saw an opening, he saw further down the tracks where actually, These computer chips could be real enablers for some of these more complex calculations that data scientists wanted to do. So he put billions into research and development to start creating computer chips that would uh, enable artificial intelligence. And we find that those chips are going to be in the autonomous cars that we're going to be driving, in the AI robots uh, that we're going to be using uh, to take us and move us away from routine tasks. And I think that's a critical piece about where leadership and the world of work is going. We are removing routine tasks, and that is what's causing the shift in terms of a difference in expectations of leaders So what we're now wanting from leadership is a greater focus on your ability around interpersonal skills, a greater focus around your ability to do good quality decision making, um, and uh, a a greater, uh, uh, I guess, focus on your ability to help the people around you to grow and develop. And that's kind of the ask. Um, I won't go into the, the other four leaders. You might recognize uh, some of them with Mark Benoit from Salesforce, uh, Francis Henry Pino from Curing, uh, Richard Templeton from Texas Instruments, and Ignacio Galan from Iberdos. So they were identified as, as the top five. Eighty-seven of the hundred listed in that survey uh, were insiders in the organization. Typically speaking, uh, they were promoted to the CEO role at the age of 45, um, and they've typically held those roles, held that office for about 15 years. Of the 100 identified, four of those are women. In last year's survey, three of those were women. So we know that if we're to do our best work in organisations, that diversity is paramount and key, and we can see uh, that this is really a big problem that we need to to address and face. Um, how did they compile this list? How did they determine who is a top global CEO? Well, how they determined it, uh, typically, you know, shareholder primacy uh, trumps all. So a big focus is on what are the financials here in terms of. Uh, shareholder value and creating uh, shareholder value. Um, So they looked at total shareholder return um, over a number of years. Um, So consistency is another factor that they looked at. Um, And they also looked at some non-financial driven measures. Uh, But they tend to be kind of vague around governance um, and and economics. And what I want to do is get into uh, some competencies that you might want to think about from another study that perhaps removes some of the vagueness around what makes a great leader or what makes an effective leader. So in a study of uh, 195 leaders uh, globally, um, across 30 different organizations, uh, they were asked to partake in the study where 74 um, competencies were identified as to what would be perceived as making you know, for the most effective leader and they were asked to rank these. And from that they identified uh, 15 attributes of effective leadership and they then grouped those into five themes. And the five themes that they identified were strong ethics and safety. And I thought that was really interesting when I came in for the, the, the speaker just before last where he was talking about ethical walls and conflicts of interest and I loved his, I know he had to do his three takeaways but I loved that the first one was you only get one reputation and I think you only get one reputation in leadership. So it's not surprising to me that one of the top themes identified in what makes an effective leader is the ability to, uh, you know, hold high standard of ethics and also uh, to create a safe space. What do we mean by creating a safe space? Well, again, the same speaker, who I'm sorry I don't know his name, Michal. Michal gave me some food for thought there, where he was talking about, you know, no bad surprises. Well, that's the same in leadership. You don't want to give your team any bad surprises, and you don't want your team to give you any bad surprises. So therefore, it's this whole idea of clarity of communication, creating a safe environment. The second one that they talked about was self-organizing. And what they mean by self-organizing is providing the clarity of direction that you want your team to take. However, then stepping away and allowing them to set about what's the roadmap in order to deliver on that direction. So it's about empowering your team. The third was around efficient learning. So um, it's important for leaders to demonstrate that they are open to other people's ideas, but more importantly, that they are open to changing their opinion and their mind so that they're seen as flexible learners. The fourth one is around this whole idea of nurturing growth. And we know from engagement and engaging, uh, having good engagement in your organizations is about helping people see their trajectory for growth and demonstrating as a leader that you actually care about their growth and their career trajectory. And the fifth and final one was that your team members feel a sense of connection and belonging. I think we all know this to be intuitively true. We're all social animals. We all want to feel as if we fit in. You know, if you find yourself in a new team and everybody seems to be being really polite with each other, the reason that we're being really polite with each other at the beginning of any team is of course because we don't want to be seen as the social misfit. We don't want to be seen as the person that doesn't fit in. So creating uh, a space for connection and belonging uh, where people feel connected is vitally important. And we know from the neuroscience that uh, emotions are contagious in organizations. They're contagious in teams. So if we see uh, a couple of colleagues have a big uh, negative confrontation with each other or a big negative falling out with each other, that makes us feel bad to experience that. So emotions are contagious positively and negatively. So what we're projecting out to our teams is crucially important. This all sounds great, but again, we need to simplify, and how might we get there? So I wanted to go into two aspects that might enable you to develop some of those five leadership competencies that I just talked about. So my food for thought is I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this whole idea of creating trust and creating trust in organizations. And then I'm going to talk to you about teamwork and collaboration and how we might go about that. So if we look at trust as a a starting point, what we know is that trust has been eroded over the last two decades in terms of how we feel about societal institutions. Um, and a big reason for that is things like the Great Recession, things like uh, a questioning around immigration policies. You know, is it the right thing to have open borders, closed borders? and everything, the conversations that that's generating. Um, And things like seeing uh, nationalities displaced from their own countries. So an awful lot of, or in action around climate change, for example. So an awful lot of these things have reduced our belief, our trust that these organizations have the ability to solve some of these problems. And uh, we see this move from what would have been traditional power or traditional leadership, where we have these kind of uh, heroes at the tops of these organizations to solve these problems for us. And increasingly, through the power of social media, we're seeing more of a movement towards peer power, where we're taking more heed of, people that are our peers, or people that feel like-minded to how we see the world. The Edelman uh, Trust Survey every year looks at this whole area of trust and our ability to trust in organizations, and most interestingly, what they've found is that there is a huge shift from uh, people that work with us, people that work for us to placing their trust more locally in their employer. So they are wanting their employer to solve some of these problems, to solve problems around climate, uh, sustainability practices, so on and so forth. They're looking to their employers to create an environment of meaning and purpose. And you might have noticed this yourselves Uh, recently that if you're interviewing new people for your teams or for your organizations that they are questioning you about the impact of your organization on wider societal issues so that shift is real and that shift is taking place so as a consequence of this uh, shift and movement towards placing more onus on the employer to solve some of these complex problems Uh, In parallel to a chronic problem in organizations around engagement levels, you can see what I mean about the expectations of leaders becoming this kind of expanding and and huge ask that is perhaps an unreasonable ask to ask of of, of one human. what are the benefits of creating trust in your organization or creating what we call high trust organizations? Well, certainly one benefit will be uh, working with the engagement and keeping engagement in your organization, which as I say, we know from data is, is a chronic problem that companies have, which is translating into Uh, you know I guess productivity so it's it's costing companies money but in high trust organizations essentially uh, what we know from looking at organizations that are perceived as high trust is that the benefits are uh, greater productivity on teams uh, less burnout less stress greater mental health well-being I guess previously, we never really thought of mental health as being an employer's issue. And I think that's probably largely because we never, as a society, were able to normalize or socialize how we talk and think about mental health. And we see now that there's a huge shift towards companies opening up uh, mindfulness classes, meditation classes, resilience classes, and recognizing that These issues are real, and they're just very human issues. So we see in high trust organizations that we are creating an environment uh, that reduces um, that burnout, and as I mentioned, increases uh, our engagement. In 2016, global CEO survey, PwC, reported that 55% of CEOs Uh, think that a lack of trust is a serious threat to their organization's ability to be able to grow. So these are real issues. I want to talk to you a little bit about how we might go about creating trust or creating that place of safety that we were talking about. And one interesting uh, study that Google did called Project Aristotle, was they said, well, we are really, really good at working with data. We're really good with identifying patterns. It would be very useful for us to get on top of what are the key indicators of high performance teams in this organization. So those teams that are high performing, what's going on in them, and how can we replicate that? So they looked at 180 teams across their organization. They looked at 60 years of uh, team effectiveness literature to try and start generating some ideas as to what would create uh, the conditions for these high performance teams and units. And they were working on the assumption that it must be uh, a case of it's all about team composition. And it's not surprising that they thought it must be about team composition and the members of the team. Because if you look at that 60 years of literature, all of the studies are looking at different elements of team composition. Okay, But what they found out from doing an analysis of these 180 teams and looking at these patterns was actually team composition had nothing to do with high performance teams, that it was something else going on in these teams. And so, They then turned their attention to looking at what are the kind of uh, identifiable factors and what are the kind of group norms going on in these teams. So what do I mean by norms? A, A universal norm is if we go to London and we get off the London Underground, We know instinctively to get out of that underground station that we stand on the right of the escalator if we want to stand. And if we want to walk up the escalator, we go on the left. And that's a universal norm and a universal truth. Well, these same things happen in teams. So they really start looking at what are the norms going on in these teams uh, that might be contributing to their success. And what they identified was four factors. These teams have clear, compelling goals. Everybody has clarity as to why they need to be a team and what it is that the team need to do. There's a feeling on these teams that my colleagues are dependable. I can depend on them when I pass off the baton to get the work done, okay? So again, trust. That the work feels like it's having impact and it feels personally meaningful. So this is an environment where I'm creating impact, but also having an opportunity to grow and learn. However, the finding for them, which was startling to them, perhaps less startling to the academic world, was that the component that made the most difference was this thing called psychological safety. And psychological safety is a term coined by a scholar called Amy Edmondson. And she coined this term from doing vast studies of medical teams. And not to scare anybody that might be going for an operation tomorrow, but what they were able to see with medical teams is... (laughs) If the hierarchy gets in the way of a team member being able to speak up and say, I think we're meant to be doing a tonsillectomy and not uh, you know, chopping off somebody's arm, and we may laugh, but these kind of medical misdemeanors uh, happen more frequently than we'd like to, like to realize or appreciate, if there isn't the psychological safety to be able to speak up and say, I think we're doing the wrong thing here. That that erodes everything else. It doesn't matter how clear your purpose is, how meaningful the work is, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So psychological safety is about the core feeling that it's okay to speak up on this team. It's okay to take an interpersonal risk on this team. So this is what Google determined after spending millions and millions to determine what is it that creates a high-performance team. However, we know from the neuroscience and what we are getting to know more and more about the brain that, that this holds true. So neuroscience corroborates this idea that we need to create spaces on our teams where people feel it's okay to speak up, it's okay to challenge ideas, Uh, It's okay to put left field ideas on the table. We know that for creativity and innovation, right? So the neuroscience corroborates uh, the need for psychological safety. If our amygdala feels uh, that we are under threat, uh, which is a legacy from uh, evolution, uh, we go into what we call a fight or flight response. What we now and we needed that to be able to survive in a world where there were predators. However, our brain hasn't become uh, sophisticated enough to realise that sometimes uh, social threats that wouldn't ever impact our ability to survive, we register those in the brain in the same way that we register that physical threat. Okay, so. What that means for us as leaders and managers is we have a unique ability in our day-to-day, moment-to-moment interactions to create trust and make people feel safe, or to erode trust and put their brain into alert mode that we are now under threat here. And it can be simple things like performance reviews, giving people feedback, so on and so forth. However, just to contextualize, it's a little bit more sophisticated than that. Some of the things that I'd like you to look out for and consider and start noticing in your teams are these five things that could really help you notice whether or not you are creating a safe space for that team member or potentially uh, signaling to them that they are in danger. So the first is around this idea of Uh, status so for some people uh, their status in the team their status in the organization is hugely hugely important to them and if they feel in our interaction with them that we are um, somehow challenging their status or challenging their place on the team this signals to the brain threat and we're simple people our brains like reward systems we don't like threat systems Another uh, uh, factor is uh, this uh, idea around certainty. So I talked about that already with Project Aristotle, that we need to have clarity of what it is that you need this team to do. So certainty is a key factor. If I feel unclear about what needs to be done, that's creating uncertainty for me, and the brain doesn't like that. Another is around uh, autonomy. So I often marvel at how often we spend considered time going out to hire the best people. And we know we've hired the best people, yet we engage in micromanaging them. And for some people, uh, that lack of autonomy and empowerment is a threat, and they are not going to thrive in that kind of an environment. Another is around this whole idea of relatedness. So I talked about that already, around connection and belonging. If I feel like an outsider, I am not going to be able to do my best work on the team. And what's an interesting paradox for us in organizations is often the people with the best ideas, with the left field ideas, feel like outsiders and are sometimes perceived in our teams as troublemakers because they're not fitting into those social norms. And that's something that we need to to move away from. And then the final one is around fairness. If I perceive that you are, uh, there's a lack of transparency or there isn't fairness to how people are being treated on the team, again, that is another indicator of uh, a threat to the brain Um, and something that we we need to avoid. So that's all well and good, but what are some simple uh, leadership practices that you can start uh, embedding into your teams straight away to create this whole idea of uh, psychological safety or creating a space for teams to challenge and innovate and, and think creatively? Well, one is uh, creating the space where you're explicitly and role modeling for your teams. Uh, this whole idea of um, this is a safe space for us to put ideas on the table, speak our minds, so on and so forth. But it's essential that you as a leader role model that and make it safe for other people to, to challenge each other's those ideas. That's only going to work if you don't uh, do it once a year at an off-site. It needs to be frequent and consistent so that it just becomes part of the team's DNA. So frequency and consistency is essential. And then the other is around this whole idea of setting out explicitly uh, the rules of engagement. So what does it mean to be a, a member of this team? If I go back to my earlier example of the London Underground, and you know, when I moved to London 20 years ago, uh, straight from college for my, my first graduate job, nobody sent me a manual and said, you know, when you're getting off the tube, this is the custom. Or whatever you do, do not make any eye contact with anybody on the tube, that's a no-no. Nobody tells you these things but you figure them out pretty quickly from observing them around you and unfortunately that's the trap that we fall into uh, when we're working with our own teams. We leave our teams to figure out for themselves what those norms are instead of giving the Bible and being explicit with them around what our expectations are. So. Those are some of the things that I would encourage you to do just to set about uh, creating greater psychological safety on your teams. From another study, there's 10 factors that inspire trust, and I'm not going to go through all of those 10. However, if anybody wants the article on the 10 factors that inspire trust, please email me afterwards and I'll send it on to you, but I'm going to just share one or two with you. Uh, The first is around this whole idea of risk tolerance. So uh, to increase risk tolerance, um, we need to have a faith that things are going to work out the way we want them to work out. And how do we go about uh, creating that in leadership? Well, we go about it by spending more time, especially during stressful times, Uh, with big deadlines looming, what's going on, what we're expecting to happen, so on and so forth. Unfortunately, human nature being human nature is, in times of high stress, we withdraw and we sometimes stop communicating. And these are the most vital times for us to be communicating and helping everybody navigate the risk. Um, Another one uh, around power. So this whole idea of authority and uh, people feeling that they have autonomy and a feeling of empowerment. Well, if we set the direction of travel, if we enable our teams to go off and figure out how they actually get to the destination, as opposed to being prescriptive as to how we want it done, another thing that we can do when we're doing our decision-making is, yes, we can hear from others, but as leaders, we need to make the final decisions. If we can be transparent with our teams as to why a decision mightn't have gone the way the team wanted it to go, as opposed to, this is the decision, we're just going to get on with it, that again can start dispersing power around the team and help people understand the direction of travel you're wishing to take. So I want to talk to you about teamwork and collaboration very, very briefly. We've talked about the whole idea of creating uh, trust in our organizations, creating greater trust in our teams. Uh, We've seen that uh, by doing so, we have a lot of benefits, not just in terms of productivity, but in terms of getting people to do their best work, so on and so forth. But we live in this world now where 65 to 95% of knowledge workers are members of more than one team. Uh, We live in an environment now where we all spend three quarters of our day collaborating and communicating with other people. So this is not going to go away. Teams are central to how things get done to solve these complex problems. And we need to figure out ways of enabling our teams uh, to be able to collaborate in the best way possible. The concept of collective intelligence and the power of collaboration is we absolutely know that bringing a team together can create a better outcome. We can exhibit collective intelligence by bringing people together. In a study that tracked teams from their very origins, all through their trajectory, as to what might be contributing to uh, the ability to exhibit collective intelligence as a team. Uh, What the researchers were fascinated to find was it had absolutely nothing to do with team members' IQ or team members' technical ability. And there were three factors that stood out, and I'll just reinforce some of the things that I've already said. One was uh, the team's ability to get on with each other and team members' ability to have social sensitivity with each other. So I can read team members' expressions, I can read the mood music in the room, I can see what's going on beyond the, beyond the verbal communication. That was the first thing. The second was that there was inequality of voice so that there was an enabling of turn taking. And we know from the neuroscience that if I know that I can have my turn on this team, uh, my brain just works much better because I'm not sitting in a meeting thinking, when am I going to get my in? When am I going to get my in? I'm listening better because I know we've created an environment where everybody can be heard. And the third and interesting one was that it really makes a difference to the proportion of females that you have on a team. Um, And this is increasingly an issue for us as we go higher up the ranks in organizations, where we just clearly don't see uh, enough women in uh, leadership positions, as we saw from the top 100, or we just don't see enough women on boards. And this is something that we really need to, to get better at. Um, A global analysis of 2,400 companies at McKinsey found that companies with at least one female board member yielded higher returns and growth, not to mention some of the other things that I have just talked about. So what is this whole idea of teamwork? So we talk uh, a considerable amount around this whole idea of high-performance teams. But like, what actually does that mean? Uh, We can't quantify it. It's going to be different for every team within the contextual environment that they find themselves in. But one thing that I can stand over is uh, we can measure the effectiveness of a team. And there's three things that I'd like you to uh, really take away from this in terms of how can I measure the effectiveness of my team. The first one is, it is my core belief that no team has a right to exist in an organization unless they are meeting and exceeding stakeholder expectations. So no team operates in a vacuum. They could be doing the best work of their life as they perceive it. However, if their stakeholders don't agree, they're not doing their best work. So teams must understand their stakeholder expectations and they must meet and exceed those. The second uh, measure of whether or not your team is effective or not is that uh, on understanding what the stakeholder commission is, that you as a as a leader it set up the right group processes and structures to enable the team to do their best work. And what we know from the data is that teams that put the right processes in place to do Better teamwork, as opposed to we'll just wing it in a meeting room, uh, are 20 to 25% more effective than teams that don't. So that's a significant number. And the third is that uh, team members feel individually uh, satisfied uh, as individual members, but also collectively, so that there is member satisfaction on the team. So another way to put that is that. It is not unreasonable for a member of your team to have an anticipation or an expectation that when they complete tasks that they will be a better professional than the time when they started out doing that task. So that we're creating an environment where our team members can grow and learn and expand their professional repertoire. I talked about this whole idea of uh, teams and this heroic leaders and and all of that good stuff. And we're not superhuman. We just simply are not superhuman. Uh, But there are some things that we do which is just us getting in our own way. And I call those leadership tripwires. And for every tripwire that I've identified here, there is a positive, compelling uh, condition that you can put in its place instead of uh, falling upstairs. Um, So the first one is, uh, I see time and time again, teams, they've no idea why they need to be a team, what their purpose is of a team, how they're measuring their performance as a team. We would never send uh, the Irish rugby team out to play and expect them not to know in real time the scoreboard. Yet we do that with teams and organizations all the time. We don't actually have the measures in place as to how we're measuring the performance of the team. So getting clarity of purpose and performance measures around those uh, uh, purposes and objectives are are essential. So creating the compelling direction. And this needs to be simplified. I think we overcomplicate it. So we need to speak plainly about what the purpose is. It needs to be clear. It needs to be compelling, as in, I want to be a part of this. But it also needs to be consequential. If we deliver this as a team, we can see that this is going to actually create impact in our organization. The only way to really get to a true understanding of what your team's purpose is, because it's often abstract, is to do the work with your stakeholders and to really get to grips with what are the expectations of this team and how do we set about meeting those. The second tripwire is we often convene the wrong people onto teams, especially on leadership teams, uh, where, you know, uh, years served gets me a place on the leadership team and I might not actually be the most uh, the most suitable person to take a role on the leadership team. Um, And then the final one is uh, really the thing that puts the the nail in the coffin for most teams is it's death by meeting. So you can see that people go into these meetings and they're just, oh my God, here we go again. Uh, People are switched out, they're on their phones. Uh, You know you've got a real issue if uh, people start sending deputies. So they stop attending the meetings themselves, but they're sending in deputies. Then you know you've got a real issue on your hands, and you know that meetings are not productive and not effective. So the key question for me is, for a team, what do you need to do together that you can't do apart? What is the nature of your interdependency? And it's only those Things that you should be getting into a room to meet about. All your individual updates about other individual tasks you're doing, find out, figure out different ways of communicating that information. So then you make team meetings compelling because you're actually in the room talking about the nature of those interdependencies and the real work of the team. I'm nearly finished, thank you your patience. The last thing I want to talk to you about is collaboration. And the reason I want to differentiate between teamwork and collaboration is because I'm very conscious in your profession uh, that there might be client work that requires teamwork, um, but more often than not, um, you are collaborating with multiple stakeholders, uh, which is a different ask than a team uh, in itself. the, the, I guess the issue that we have with collaboration is that we spend too much time on offsites in lots of different places, putting big things up around our walls, um, identifying the, the values that we must adopt to be collaborative. And I'm not dismissing that they are useful, but what we're not giving people is, What are the actual skills, the training needed to be able to do good collaboration? And I want to just share with you uh, six things that I believe you should be training your people to do. So uh, how often do you send your employees or your team members off to do presentation courses, uh, influencing courses, skills around how they verbally communicate? Quite often. How often or hands up anybody in this room that has been sent on a listening course where the title of the course was listening anybody one one person in a room of i don't know how many it's an important piece though isn't it because communication is just not about what we externalize communication is about it's a two-way process on how well we listen, yet we don't teach our people how to listen well. And because we don't teach our people how to listen well, that faces another problem with how people hear feedback. And we're doing ourselves a great disservice as leaders because we're putting all the onus on ourselves to be able to give pitch-perfect feedback to another person. But what we haven't said is this is also a two-way relationship. And how well you listen to that feedback and take that feedback on board is equally something that we should be training for. So um, we need to teach our people how to listen, not to talk. We need to train people to practice empathy. I guess when Google were looking at Project Aristotle, uh, they were distraught to find that psychological safety was the most important component of teamwork because a lot of reason why engineers chose to work at Google was because they were, uh, it took them out of the realm of having to discuss their feelings or uh, anything of an emotive nature. So, my God, if we uh, recognize now that a big component of that is social sensitivities for others and uh, being able to read the room and practicing empathy. Uh, it's something that we, we need to, to practice uh, a little bit more. I guess one of my own tips and tricks, um, if you go on my LinkedIn profile, you'll see that my, my, you know, the thing that you write about yourself is that I'm an empathy enthusiast. So I'm always searching to enhance and increase my own empathy. And one way that I do that is I deliberately follow people on Twitter that I fundamentally disagree with, that I fundamentally find their views uh, completely opposing to mine as a way of trying to develop my own empathy. Uh, I already talked about feedback and the need to help our people hear the feedback that we're giving. Um, The other thing is I'm often invited to do talks on leadership Um, I'm yet to be invited to do a talk on followership, yet we can only have a certain number of leaders and we've got tons and tons of followers. Notwithstanding, sometimes leaders uh, need to be followers themselves and have the humility to know when somebody else on the team is the best person to lead. So we need to get better about talking about this concept of of, uh, followership. The other two things are are pretty obvious. They speak for themselves. Uh, We're brilliant for creating uh, management jargon. I've done a ton of that in the last 40 minutes. Uh, So we're brilliant at that, putting these kind of names and abstract labels on things. However, if we just simplified and and talked more plainly with each other, like in the good old-fashioned days when we used to sit around the pub and share stories, that's how you really learn, that's how you really progress. And then we need to create an environment for win-win interactions. So if I asked you all to pair off, and I gave you one orange, and I gave one half of the pair the brief, I'd like you to create juice, and I gave the other half the brief, I'd like you to take peel to make muffins, Um, I'd be very interested to know how many of the pairs uh, but not knowing that information that, that was you had two different briefs how many of you would achieve uh, a win-win situation out of that and more often than not we don't and when people feel that they have lost something uh, that again impacts their psychological safety so I'm going to wrap up and say that um, we're back to uh, this whole idea of uh, leaders get the teams and organisations they deserve I certainly have a view on that, but I also recognize um, and I believe that they do get the teams and organizations they deserve. It's like baking a cake, you put in the right ingredients, you get the right results. So it's about what you as a leader put into your teams. But I also, um, I'm really concerned is probably too strong a word, uh, maybe interested in uh, our pursuit. Our continued pursuit of uh, God-complex leadership and expecting one person to have all the, answer- the answers, it's a complete nonsense, and we need to look at better ways of collaborating and creating collective intelligence. So that's all I have to say for uh, a quick whirlwind of some concepts around teamwork and collaboration. Uh, CPD, one hour, tick.
0: Okay, thank you very much Melissa and thank you everyone for demonstrating such great listenership and empathy uh, with all your speakers. Much everyone, safe trip home.